Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us His Word, I will conclude by saying this is the Word of the Lord and invite you to respond together. Thanks be to God. Today's scripture reading is from Revelation chapter 1, verse 20 to chapter 2, verse 7. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Thank you, Chris, for uh, reading after doing the dramatic ending to that song all at once. So, <laughs> A man of many talents, Chris Anderson. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Ian. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here and excited to uh, open up God's Word for us. Uh, before we begin, though, I want to go ahead and dismiss our kids who are hanging out in Kingdom Kids at this time. Uh, if you are in preschool, you can follow Mariah to that door. If you are in uh, K-1 through over here on this side, and uh, elementary age students, uh, glad you guys are with us uh, in service today. Uh, feel free to grab some clipboards. Those are available in the connection room. I will say uh, the kids' coloring sheet for Revelation is uh, we've taken it up a notch, okay? I think it took my son the entire service to try to get all those things colored in. So uh, parents, please know that's available for you uh, in the connection room as well. Uh, well, I'm excited to continue in our uh, new series here through the book of Revelation, Revelation Volume 1. Uh, I will say if you missed last week and uh, you plan to be uh, with us uh, here at the King's Church, you're going to need to go back and listen to last week. Okay, we set up the whole book. We looked at Revelation chapter 1, uh, a lot of important details there, so I don't push this often, but please go back and listen to that, and we'll draw back into that from chapter 2 today. Uh, I want us to begin uh, this morning, though, uh, by thinking about uh, a trend that I've noticed that's developed in entertainment right now, and that's the uh, resurgence of origin stories. 
You guys know what I'm talking about on that? Like, if you go on Disney Plus right now, like, half of the things on there are the origin stories for all the Marvel characters and superheroes, right? Uh, origin stories for the Star Wars series. Uh, origin stories for X-Men have been around for, like, 15 years. I mean, they keep making just millions of dollars off that, right? Uh, but let's think about those stories for a minute. What purpose do origin stories have? Well, they inform us about the key circumstances or people and events that helped shape and craft a person's trajectory. Right? Those origin stories tell us how a character either becomes the hero or the villain. Maybe how they got their superpowers, and it kind of explains why they are the way that they are. Now, typically in the cinematic world, uh, these origin stories, if they involve a superhero, typically tell of some kind of awful, unthinkable tragedy in their childhood that they have to overcome. And that shapes them as the person they're going to be moving forward. Those stories tell us the roots of who someone is, what their mission is, and what their sense of calling is for the work that they're doing. Now, I want us to keep that concept in mind as we come to our text this week, because just like all those superheroes and Star Wars characters have origin stories, uh, every church also has an origin story. And our origin story reminds us of our purpose and our calling and our mission. And when we forget where we have come from, we may end up drifting into something that we might never have thought we would have gotten to. You see, last week as we introduced uh, Revelation, we saw that uh, Jesus appears his, in his resurrected glory to the Apostle John. John is given a vision, an apocalypse, a pulling back of the curtains to see Jesus in his glorified state in the heavens. And now this Jesus in his glorified state for these next two chapters in the book of Revelation, the rest of our summer in this series is going to open his mouth and address the seven churches that the letter of Revelation is written to. And today he's going to begin with the church in Ephesus. And we know a ton about the church in Ephesus, just from within the New Testament itself and from the writings of early Christians right after the New Testament. In fact, we know in great detail its origin story. We know where Ephesus started. We know from Acts 19. We know from uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians all sorts of critical details about where the church in Ephesus got its start. But last week we also saw that that resurrected Jesus dwells in the midst of the lampstands, which represent the churches, which means he knows their true spiritual states. And while we might trace the story of the book of Ephesus, the church of Ephesus, excuse me, throughout the New Testament and think, man, that's really impressive. This church has begun to drift. They've lost sight of their origin story, and their mission and their purpose is beginning to move in a direction away from what Jesus is calling them to. And I think that we here at the King's Church need to listen to what the resurrected Jesus says. I think we could be just as susceptible as the church in Ephesus to their drift. And so this morning, here's our main idea. It's a very simple main idea. Simple in theory, hard in practice. Christ calls us to hold fast to orthodoxy without neglecting our first love. Christ calls us to hold fast to orthodoxy, orthodoxy being right belief, sound doctrine, without neglecting our first love. Before we jump in, though, let's pray. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we thank you for the chance we have to open up your word this morning. We thank you that you have graciously given it to us. And I pray right now that you, uh, Holy Spirit, would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to the good news of the gospel. May we see the truth of your word this morning. Jesus, may we see you in your resurrected glory. And may we be reminded of your kindness towards us in the gospel that does draw us to repentance. May we not drift from our first love. Show us the ways where we are tempted to do so and help us to remain faithful to what it is you've called us to. Stir that up within us. Use this time now toward that end, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, three movements today. We're going to look at the concern of Christ, the commendation of orthodoxy, and then the correction of love. Let's begin with the concern of Christ. I want to pick up the text where Chris started for us back in uh, verse 20 of chapter 1. It says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. By the way, always helpful in Revelation when John just tells us from the mouth of Jesus what the symbols represent, okay? Chapter 2, verse 1, To the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Let me begin by setting up Jesus' words to the seven churches, which will be what we're looking at for the rest of the summer. Uh, there's a mystery here in chapter 1, verse 20, and mystery in the scriptures uh, often does not reveal, doesn't mean the same thing that we think of when a mystery story that has maybe a surprise ending. It's something out there that we can't know. Mystery in the scriptures is the idea of something that was once hidden, but now has been revealed. Something that we could not see, but now has been made manifest. This goes hand in hand with that definition of apocalypse we looked at last week, which is not so much a secret to be decoded or so much exclusively referring to the end of the world as much as it is an unveiling, a pulling back of the curtain to show you what's really there that maybe you hadn't seen before. So we have two primary symbols here. We have uh, the seven stars in Jesus' right hand. Those represent the seven angels, he says. There's some debate about what that means, but in the New Testament, we know that there's spiritual warfare going on that we cannot see. And by the way, that spiritual warfare is not just the enemy and those following the enemy coming after us. There also are angels. Angels in the scriptures are two things, messengers and warriors. That's why when angel shows up in the Old or New Testament, the first thing they say is, do not be afraid because a warrior of the heavenly host is standing before them. And Jesus here is saying, in my right hand, I hold precious the angels who are guarding and protecting and engaged in that warfare on your behalf. And then there's the seven lampstands. That's the seven churches this letter is addressed to. All of them are mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 11. Now, I want to be clear. Everything in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation is written to particular Christians gathered in specific churches and locations in the first century. They exist in real space and time. We talked about one of the dangers of Revelation is missing the original context. Chapters 2 and 3 are writing to real Christians in real space and time. So we want to appreciate what the resurrected, glorified Jesus says to them. But we also want to acknowledge that while we mine for what it meant originally, the number seven is symbolic and significant in Revelation. It's not a coincidence that it's seven churches. And by seven churches, I think this is how we're supposed to read this. 
What is the particular message given to those churches in real space and time that has a universal application for the church in all times, in all places? You see, I think Revelation 2 and 3 is sort of a litmus test for Christians in all places. What is it that Jesus warns these churches about that we ought to be thoughtful in our own context? Yes, we do not have the shadow of the Roman Empire kind of casting its light on us, but what kind of circumstances do we find ourselves in that we might be tempted to fall away? So these are specific words with universal, timeless application, and I think we'd be wise to hear and to heed the words of our glorified, resurrected, risen Savior. Now, there's the same pattern that's followed throughout these uh, letters to the churches. Their first is an identification with the aspect of glory of Jesus in chapter 1. Uh, we looked that last week. It's an unbelievable picture, full of symbolism of Jesus' power and glory. And you'll notice that as Jesus addresses the churches, he's reminding them of something about his glorified state that they specifically need to hear for their situation. So here, the church in Ephesus needs to be reminded that Christ holds the church in his right hand, and he walks among them. He knows what's really going on in their midst. That's what they needed to hear. Secondly, it's followed by a commendation or an encouragement to the churches to endure, to remain faithful through persecution or opposition. And then there is a confrontation and a challenge. By the way, Jesus does this because uh, in Revelation 3.19, it says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. It's Father's Day today. A good father does discipline their children. And God disciplines his people. There's a confrontation and a challenge so that they might not fall away but endure. And then lastly, there is a promise to those who conquer, to those who conquer and endure faithfully to the end. That promise invokes images from the book of Revelation from the end of the book. It's trying to lift their eyes above their present situation, look ahead to what is to come, and as they fill their mind with that, live faithfully in the present. We said last week, Revelation is not exclusively about the end of all things and the return of Christ, though it is. It is just as much about how to live faithfully in the here and now. And the vision of the end stirs that up together right now, okay? So here's the question, I think, as we wrestled through these seven letters this summer. If the resurrected Jesus does walk and dwell in our midst, which, by the way, he does, according to the Bible, so if that's the case, what would he say to us? What aspect of Christ's glory in chapter 1 do we need to be reminded of? What would we be commended for as a body of Christ And, uncomfortably, what would Jesus confront us over? Where would he speak the truth in love to us and challenge us? And what promises do we need to remember? That's how we read this section. This is a litmus test for us. So let's begin this morning with the concern of Christ for the church in Ephesus. A little context on Ephesus. One of the five largest cities in the Roman Empire in the first century It's located right on a strategic port in Asia Minor. It was known as the Gateway to Asia. All four of the infamous major Roman roads in this area all led to Ephesus. It all converged on this city. And the city, religiously, was steeped in idolatry. It was the headquarters for the worship of Artemis, 
in the Greek thought, which is better known as the Roman goddess Diana, which is even better known, speaking of superheroes, as Wonder Woman, okay? One of the seven wonders of the world was in Ephesus, and it was a temple to Artemis, a shrine to Wonder Woman. They had also within their midst uh, a strong emperor cult presence. We talked about that a little bit last week, that uh, there was an expectation that they were to worship Caesar, not just as their authority and ruler, but as Lord. There was a temple to Julius Caesar in Ephesus. There's all sorts of Roman artifacts that have been discovered in Ephesus, which was destroyed. And the church, therefore, they faced social, religious, and economic pressure to bow the knee to Caesar and to proclaim that he's Lord. That's the context in Ephesus. That's the concern of Christ for them. Now, what does he commend them for? Well, there's a commendation for orthodoxy. Look beginning in verse 2. The risen Christ says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Then go down to verse 6. After he reproves them, he says, yet you, you have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So where's the commendation from the Lord Jesus for the church in Ephesus? Well, it begins by saying that he knows their toil, their good work, their patient endurance in the face of opposition, and their bearing up for the name of Christ. The Ephesians have felt that pressure around them, and even within them, as we'll see, and they have been found faithful. They're enduring. They're not capitulating to the culture around them. They are bearing up. And we will see specifically that they're faithful in their doctrinal discernment. They had an intolerance for evil in their midst, and they rejected false teachers and false teaching. Jesus specifies two groups that sought to distract the Ephesians away from the truth of the gospel. He starts by saying, you've tested those who called themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. He's speaking about those who came in their midst and claimed to be apostles, claimed to be leaders in the church, but yet they were teaching that which was contrary to sound doctrine. So what did the Ephesians do? They opened up the scriptures, and they refuted their false teaching. They pointed out that they were taking them away. They were trying to lead the flock of God astray. And they have been found faithful. Doctrinally, they were orthodox, and they were holding fast. This makes sense, by the way. Let's go back to the origin story of the church in Ephesus. I mean, they had some real heavy hitters leading the church. I mean, this is kind of a who's who's lineup. Like, this is an all-star collaboration here of leadership. The church in Ephesus, we know, was planted by Apollos, a man that was said to be eloquent and competent in the Scriptures, fervent in spirit. Apparently in Corinth, there was some argument about how Apollos was this just dynamic preacher of the gospel, and Paul was just not. But Apollos is the one who plants the church in Ephesus. And then he shows up all over the New Testament. There's the fruit of his labors all over the early church. Well, then after Apollos, the Apostle Paul comes to the church in Ephesus, and he spends his longest single stint of any church 
in his missionary journeys with Ephesus. And listen to his exhortation to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He says this beginning in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And guess what? They listened. Imagine that. People were coming from within that they refuted. They cared for the flock of God by pushing out those who would draw them astray, those who were fierce wolves. After the Apostle Paul leaves, he then writes the letters of First and Second Timothy in the New Testament, and guess where Timothy is ministering? Ephesus. He is ministering in Ephesus, and Paul warns him over and over again, watch out for false teachers, preach the word faithfully, be ready in season and out of season, hold fast to sound doctrine. And then, if that's not enough, after that, you know who shows up to lead the church in Ephesus? The Apostle John himself. He leads and shepherds the flock in the city. The one who's receiving these very visions served as a pastor of the city. Church history would say after his exile in Patmos, when he receives this is over, he goes back to Ephesus and dies there as a very old man. He may have composed 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John while pastoring in this city. Ephesus has a rich, long history of holding fast to sound doctrine. They took heed to the exhortation from their leaders. They're also commended in verse 6 because they hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Uh, the Nicolaitans, if you read anything about Revelation, uh, you're going to find as many theories about who they are and what they held as things that you read, okay? From within these letters, they show up a few times. And the best picture I can give you of the Nicolaitans is that they argued that, yeah, you could be a Christian and you can kind of participate in some of this emperor worship going on out here. You can be a follower of Jesus, and you can be free because you're free in Christ to participate in the cultural practices that come in living in a city like Ephesus. From elsewhere, we'll see in a couple of churches later, uh, this may have included sexual immorality. It may have included flaunting, eating food offered to idols, which cause others to sin and stumble. But they seem to be arguing that you can practice things that are sinful, but since you're saved in Christ, it doesn't matter. You can kind of sprinkle some worldliness on top of your faith. And the Ephesian Christians didn't go down that path. They pushed back. They refused to follow them. Jesus, in fact, it may be startling, says that he hates the works of the Nicolaitans. But hate and love, don't forget, are not incompatible Love does hate what is evil and that which threatens the beloved. And so they have hated what Christ has hated. So this commendation makes sense if we think about the church in Ephesus. They were holding fast to orthodoxy and right belief, a belief that both saves and sanctifies. This is fitting from their origin story. And I want to note, church, that's not something to be taken lightly. 
You will not endure. We will not endure. The body of Christ will fall away if we do not hold fast to that which is true. Our salvation depends upon being faithful to the faith that was delivered once and for all to the saints, that has been passed down by generation and generation. We will not have faithful endurance unless we believe what is true. And brothers and sisters, there is a warning here that even in the first century, we see this happening. There's always going to be calls to soften what the Bible says in order to accommodate ourselves to the culture in a more fashionable way. There are always going to be areas of the Bible that we might be, quite frankly, a little bit embarrassed by. And we start to think, ah, I mean, I know it says that, but really, and then we begin to fall away. To maybe state the obvious, in our world today, what the Bible says about gender, marriage, sexuality, probably is our biggest pressure points. I mean, it's the month of June. You've opened your eyes, right? There's a lot of pressure going on around us. And the temptation is to capitulate to the culture. The temptation is to turn back from what the Bible says is true and therefore is good and beautiful, by the way, to make ourselves more palatable to the world around us. Listen, the gospel is offensive. It is a stumbling block. Now, very importantly, that does not mean that you or I are offensive. That does not mean you or I are the stumbling block. We let Christ be that. But there is a call here. We must hold fast to what is true. Listen, the gospel has no power when it is stripped of its truth. They've held fast. However, not everything is well in the church of Ephesus. While that is worthy of commendation and while we must pursue that together, church, something has gone wrong. And if I could say this pastorally as a church who cares a lot about doctrine, who cares a lot about holding fast to orthodoxy, who takes those things very seriously, I think our ears better be open to this correction because we may slip into this as well. Let's begin in verse 4. The risen Christ says this, but I have this against you. Now, just imagine for a minute, by the way. These were read out loud in the churches. The church of Ephesus is first up. They're the closest geographically to Patmos. John has been there. Jesus commends them for their faithfulness. And then imagine the moment when Jesus tells John to tell the church in Ephesus, but I have this against you. Is there room for Jesus to correct you in your faith? Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The risen, glorified Christ confronts them. Yes, you have sound doctrine. You've held fast to orthodoxy, but you have abandoned your first love. He's commending them that you have theological acumen in your head that is strong, but when he pops the hood of their hearts open, he finds it lacking. Their love has grown cold and joyless. Now, what does Jesus mean by abandoning their first love? What is he referencing there? Is he talking about their love for God or their love for other people? Well, brothers and sisters, I want to hold that the answer to that is yes, because it is impossible if you love God to not love other people. 
and you cannot love other people unless you really love God. I think he's thinking holistically here. Think of it this way. He's warning them that they have lost their love for God vertically. They have lost their love for others in the church horizontally. And critically, they have lost their love for people outside the church, missionally, outwardly. Okay, let's walk through those three dynamics. First, they've lost their love for God vertically. While they believed right things about God, they have no joy accompanying that right belief. They had big brains and small hearts, which is a symptom that something is not right. It's sort of like a vending machine. This illustration has a shelf life, okay? Because now we tap cards and do all sorts of crazy things to get things out of vending machines, okay? But if you think back in the day, there's these things called coins, right? quarters. So if you want something out of the vending machine, you'd put the coins in there, and sometimes, like half the time, the coin gets stuck, right? And so you're like shaking that thing, you're like trying to commit assault on this vending machine to get your butterfinger out, right? Here's what's happened in the Church of Ephesus. That coin went in to their heads, and it never drops to their hearts. It's stuck up there. It's an underdeveloped faith. It's like a vending machine. The Church in Ephesus was faithful to the Bible. They probably preached through it expositionally verse by verse. They equipped others in how to read it and how to stay grounded in it. Maybe they offered classes where they looked at books of the Bible and the Old Testament. They studied doctrine together. They were not being led away by false teaching, but at some point in time, it risked becoming merely intellectual knowledge. It was merely mental assent. Their religion became more of a theory and less of a love affair, to paraphrase G.K. Chesterton. Trevin Wax puts it this way, it's possible to have the body of orthodoxy and yet not the beating heart. There is a pseudo-orthodoxy that masquerades under doctrinal precision and theological certainty, but lacks vibrancy and power. Saying the right things can hide a heart unwilling to perform the right actions. This quote wrecked me, by the way. Y'all with me? You still with me? The problem, of course, is not in what we say or the pursuit of doctrinal precision or the deepening of theological conviction. The problem is not what is there, but what's not there, an experience with the living God, a heart set on fire by the gospel. Do we have the body of orthodoxy without the beating heart? There's a warning here, church. They've lost their love for God vertically. Secondly, they've lost their love for one another horizontally. In the early days of the church, Jesus saved and brought together a crazy diverse people. In fact, the whole reason we're called Christians is because when they looked at the church at Antioch, they couldn't figure out anything that tied them together except for Jesus himself. Different backgrounds, different races, uh, different socioeconomic status, different skin colors. The only thing that tied them together is Jesus. And some of the richest theological truths that we have about the unity that Jews and Gentiles have in Christ, that the fact that the gospel makes a diverse people, family, are found in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Strangers and enemies have become citizens and saints, fellow members in the household of God. But what happened was that this slowly began to drift. And the warning is, it's maybe precisely what they are commended for that can lead them to distance themselves from one another relationally. 
One commentator says it this way, it may well be that the heresy hunting had killed love, and orthodoxy had been achieved at the price of fellowship. Brothers and sisters, may it not be so. They knew the rich truths doctrinally of their union together with Christ, but their experiential communion had become cold and distant. To use some language we use around here, they had gospel doctrine, but they lacked a gospel culture. They had right belief, but they had no relational warmth. They had lost their love for one another. And thirdly, they had lost their love for the mission. Their outward relationships were drifting away. By the way, the whole idea of a church being a lampstand speaks to this reality. If we know anything about Jesus, he's not picking arbitrary things. When he says that the seven lampstands or the seven churches, that's very intentional. What is a lampstand supposed to do? Provide light to all around it. Think back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Being a lampstand implies that we are loving people outside of our walls. We are taking the mission outward. And the church in Ephesus may have grown so concerned about their theological precision, which again, brothers and sisters, is necessary and a good thing, that they lost sight of the thrill of the mission. They had remembered that they were to teach others all that Jesus had commanded, but they forgot they were supposed to go and make disciples of all nations. In their effort to defend orthodoxy, they lost the energy and the vibrancy of the mission that God has called his people to. They've forgotten that the love of Christ compels them to be ambassadors to a lost and broken world. And his call to correction seems to hint that this is part of this reality. He says in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. He tells the church in Ephesus, remember and repent. Do the works you did at first. Let's go back to the origin story. Do you know what happened in the church of Ephesus? It's recorded in Acts 19. It started small. A dozen men heard the gospel, were baptized. They began to speak in tongues and prophesy. You do with that what you want. The text says that, okay? Then Paul comes alongside the church, begins to proclaim the gospel all throughout Ephesus and the surrounding regions. They share the gospel widely. They begin to plant churches and scatter all across Asia. You know what Acts 19.10 says? This ministry continued for two years so that, get this, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That's where they started. There was a zeal for the mission. There was an urgency to be a light to the world. And then you know what happens in Ephesus? A literal riot broke out over the gospel. When's the last time we shared the gospel enough that a riot was on the verge of breaking out? So many people in Ephesus were turning to Christ that people stopped buying the little silver shrines to Diana to worship. So a silversmith named Demetrius gathered together all the other people who were now economically disadvantaged. Their funding of idolatry has run out, and they throw a riot against the church. 
The gospel and Jesus were unignorable in Ephesus. And all throughout Asia, the gospel shook things up. But now, as John writes this, about 40 years have passed. And their love for the Lord, their love for one another, their love for the mission had been abandoned. The joy they had in the gospel at first was now crowded out by other concerns. Their love was missing. And here's the dangerous thing, brothers and sisters. You don't wake up one day and just decide you're going to abandon it. No, what happens is a subtle drift over time. You lose sight of where you came from. You lose sight of what God has called you to. And all of a sudden, you've lost your love. And there's a warning here from Jesus. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Tom Schreiner says that means this. Removing the lampstand means the church will lose its status as a Christian church. The light of Christ will no longer shine, and the message of the gospel will no longer resound from a church that has lost its first love. It will harden into a parody of a Christian church. For a church without love is a church without the gospel. A church animated by the gospel is full of love as the continued need for mercy and grace echoes throughout the church. To put it simply, a church that has lost its love has lost its light. So let's pause here. This is a litmus test for us. Let's ask some hard questions. If you're here at the King's Church, how could this shift, how could this subtle drift play out for us? Well, will it be said about us that though we knew all the right things doctrinally, that we ultimately experience no joy from that orthodoxy? Have we lost sight that the gospel tells us we were once dead in our sins but made alive by the mercy and grace of Jesus? Have we lost sight that theologically, doctrinally, you and I were hell-bound, but the mercy and grace of Jesus has shown up and now we are bound for glory? Do we know that in our heads or have we experienced that in our hearts? Will it be said about us at the King's Church that we knew the theological truth that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, joined by His blood, but yet we acted more like strangers and developed factions and divisions and special interest groups within the church? Did we become a social club rather than an outpost of the kingdom of God? Will it be said of us at the King's Church that we got a beautiful building but lost the mission outside of the building? Will it be said that the steps of faith that they used to take became missing as they grew more comfortable? What will be said of us? See, there's a warning for us. Jesus warns the church in Ephesus, remember and repent. Look back to the works you did before. But friends, repentance also involves looking ahead in faith. And that's where we have to close today in verse 7. Still with me? Verse 7, here we go. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. By the way, for the Ephesians to conquer is to overcome their own apathy and loveless faith. They've actually conquered the pressures outside, but they've failed to conquer their own hearts. For those who conquer that, there's a promise here. For those who fan that back into flame, what awaits them in the future is that Jesus will grant them to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. 
We do not have time to pull on all the threads I want to with the tree of life. But listen, the tree of life shows up in the beginning and the end of the Bible. The tree of life is there in the Garden of Eden. There's two trees that have name, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. God tells Adam and Eve, he tells Adam, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but you can eat from all the other trees. And then Adam and Eve eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it says explicitly at the end of Genesis 2 that they are barred from touching and eating the tree of life. One of the consequences of their sin is that they are cut off from what the Garden of Eden represented. And that tree of life, you know what it represented? Vibrant, joyful communion with God. Every time Adam and Eve didn't eat from the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they ate from the other trees, they were rehearsing what is ultimately true, that listening to God's word leads to communion with God and a life of flourishing. It says that God walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. But the first consequence that comes from their sin right after that is that there is now one of those warrior angels guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden, cutting them off from the access to the tree of life. You get the picture? The tree of life symbolizes God's presence with his people. Sin has ruined that. But the gospel tells us that what Adam has lost Christ will restore. So we get to the end of the book of Revelation, right? And we see Jesus, the one who, by the way, came in the flesh to tabernacle among us, same author says elsewhere, to be the very presence of God in the midst of a sinful people. And he's the one who through his death on another tree, a cursed tree, bears the penalty of our sin outside the city gates of Jerusalem as an exile. But we get to the end of the book of Revelation, and in his resurrection, we see that he overthrows sin's power. He restores our relational vibrance and communion with our Father. And in Revelation 22, the last chapter in the book of the Bible, you know what shows up? The tree of life. In the midst of the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven, standing at the center is the tree of life. Its leaves are for the healing of the nations. It says there'll be no need for the sun. You know why? because the radiance and the glory of God's presence will be its light. The tree of life shows up because eternal life is a restoration of all that world was meant to be, but even sweeter, because we know the price, as we just sang, that our redemption came. The tree of life, eating from the tree of life, again, revelation, symbolism. Maybe we'll be plucking fruit off the tree and eating it. He's saying we will enjoy the fruits We will enjoy the blessings of God's presence dwelling with his people for all eternity with no more sin, no more danger of anyone else coming in. You will have a vibrant communion with the triune God forever. So brothers and sisters, what does that mean for your faith right now? We just sang about it. It's a foretaste, which means if eternal life is enjoying a loving relationship with the triune God, what does your relationship with the triune God look like right now? We are being invited into a vibrant, joyful relationship of love. And Jesus says, that's what eternity is going to be. If you're looking forward to that, then don't grow cold right now. Fan into flame that love. Remember the works you did at first cultivate your love for the Lord, your love for others, and your love for the mission. None of that will ever be wasted.
Brothers and sisters, let's hold fast to orthodoxy, but let's not abandon our first love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you communicate the truth to us in love. So for us here at the King's Church, as we seek to be faithful doctrinally to the faith delivered once for all to the saints, may we hold fast to that. May we have a firm foundation built on the gospel and the truths that it tells us. May we not water down, compromise, soften what the Scripture says is true. May we communicate the truth in love to the world around us. But at the very same time, guard our hearts from becoming disconnected from our heads. When we read and listen and comprehend the incredible truths of the gospel, may it not just become intellectual knowledge, but may it light our heart on fire with joy and gratitude for your finished work, Jesus. May that express itself in love for you, love for one another, and may all people know that we are your disciples by our love for one another as we engage on the mission that you are overseeing. May we not lose sight of the call to love. May we not grow distant. Help us to be faithful in that way. Stir it up within us. Reveal the places that we're at risk of drift and call us back to yourself and sustain us until the day we eat from the tree of life in your presence for eternity. Sustain us until that day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.